Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. Serving the community for over 75 years, Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on Pinnacle Health's achievements in patient safety can be found at pinnaclehealth.org quality. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. The largest and most violent white supremacy rally in a decade rocked Charlottesville, Virginia Saturday, and it has the whole nation talking. It was planned as an event to protest the removal of the Confederate st- of a statue of Confederate sta- uh, General Robert E. Lee from a Charlottesville park, but quickly turned into a violent confrontation between neo-Nazis, Ku Klux Klan, skinheads, and counter-protesters. The melee didn't result in any serious injuries until one of the white supremacists rammed a speeding car into a crowd, killing a 32-year-old woman and injuring 19 others. Rallies against racism were held yesterday and last night around the country, including one here in Lancaster. We're joined by Joanne Edwards, Executive Director of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, and Josh Bartosz, who is a civil rights investigator with the Human Relations Commission. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Uh, Joanne Edwards, let me start with you. Uh, you know, I think one of the, the, the thoughts that many people had around the country and here in Pennsylvania is, could this happen in our state, in our city, uh, in a local area here? So we know that uh, Pennsylvania is home, unfortunately, to uh, many, many hate groups. What are the chances of something like what happened in Charlottesville happening here in Pennsylvania? Well, there's always a chance for that. And we've been preparing here at the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission Uh, I've partnered with our uh, civil rights agencies across the state, and we have a uh, crisis tension protocol response for Pennsylvania. Uh, We have our own crisis intervention team, which uh, consists of myself, our chief counsel, our press secretary, our director of education and community services, our outreach coordinator, our assistant chief counsel, and then our regional directors, which uh, are in charge of our three regional offices, that would be Harrisburg, Philadelphia, and and Pittsburgh, as well as our advisory councils, who are the arms of the commission. These are local leaders in the communities uh, that we work with so that if there is tension in the communities, we have uh, hands right there on the ground. So um, with this crisis protocol, uh, I have uh, contacts at all the other civil rights agencies across the state Uh, So, for example, if an incident occurs in the Philadelphia area, I'd be reaching out to the Philadelphia Commission and uh, seeing what kind of assistance they need and how we as a state agency can assist our partners in uh, Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that includes contacts to such as the uh, uh, state police, as well as the local police chief, the mayor, uh, even religious leaders, any partners that we have relationships in those areas that can help us to deal with the situation and alert the public to what's going on. They had uh, plans in place in Charlottesville, too. I mean, they knew this was coming. One of the things that happened, I understand, is that the rally was scheduled in a park uh, to begin at uh, noon and or 1130, something like that, and it actually got together. All the people came together, counter-protesters and those in the rally, a little bit earlier. So they had plans as well, but they weren't able to stop it. So what assurances do we have that we would be any more successful here in Pennsylvania? I think all we can do is continue to be prepared and learn from incidents that uh, are occurring uh, and have occurred in the past. Uh, you know, Josh and I were talking about this this morning, and there's an, an active investigation occurring right now. Uh, so we need to pay attention to what, what are the facts and then use that information as we continue to prepare. Uh, Our crisis protocol is something that is going to continue to evolve. It it is not a document that stays just in one condition. We will add on as we learn more information to put the uh, information in our protocol uh, that will help us 
to be uh, more, uh, I, I will say, less reactive and more proactive. And, uh, you know, we do our own education and outreach here. Uh, we deal with all aspects of the community to try to uh, teach people what hate crimes are and how they can respond to hate crimes. But the education and training is so important so that we can try to get the fears that folks have about people living in their community who are different and keep that education up front. And, and uh, that way we feel we can get out there, let folks know who we are, and that we are available for assistance. Yet, yeah, just to be clear, the Human Relations Commission investigates uh, hate crimes, but uh, you also keep track of uh, hate group activity here in Pennsylvania. Josh, let me turn to you, Josh Bartosh. Uh, as a civil rights investigator, it seems, and this is just an observation, and maybe because it's been described in Charlottesville Saturday as the worst uh, white supremacist uh, rally or most violent in a decade, it seems as though there are there is more activity of hate groups. Is that true here in Pennsylvania? Well, there have been some statistics that have shown an increase, at least by Southern Poverty Law Center and groups like the Anti-Defamation League, that do keep track of and work with our agency. But we have to be very careful. We had talked about this, you and I, before. Right. Whenever we talk about the numbers of hate groups that are active in Pennsylvania and the statistics associated with it, we do have to take into consideration that Oftentimes we don't know how many people are necessarily affiliated with any one group. It could be an individual or it could be a large group. But for the most part, all we know is the activity online. Most of the statistics come from online websites. And an individual can develop a website and inflate their activities and the number of people that are affiliated with them in PA. Also, as it relates to these groups that are being tracked, not all of them are necessarily alt-right or uh, white nationalists like the ones we were dealing with in Virginia. So it's something to also keep in mind whenever we're addressing the escalation or what could be perceived as the escalation. To be perfectly forthright, I'm less concerned about the organized groups and I'm more concerned about the average person in our society who might not necessarily feel that they need to belong to one of these groups to feel that their ideals or ideologies that are associated with the groups become mainstream and then they feel empowered to make statements and even take actions in the community. Even with what's going on in Virginia, the individual who rammed the, uh, the group of protesters, it's unclear at this point to, to, at, in terms of what the law enforcement is aware of to know if he's in fact affiliated with or a member of any of the groups that were marching or protesting or affiliated with the groups that were there very specifically uh, as part of the uh, Unite the Right rally. Um, in fact, we talk about this before. Oftentimes the tactics associated with um, alt-right and very specifically white supremacist groups were to encourage their own membership to behave lawfully in the public eye and then allow the counter-protesters to, uh, counter to behave poorly to show as like a counterpoint, uh, show how we are um, upstanding citizens whereas the anarchists that are in opposition to us are the unlawful ones in our society. Um, that's usually the tactic that they employ. And what's unusual here is that we had an individual that could very well have been sympathetic to the alt-right groups that took violent action, which would usually fall in opposition to, once again, their, their old tactics. But we also talked about the fact that many of these groups also encourage lone wolf behavior, where they encourage an individual to take action upon themselves, who basically feel empowered to either take unlawful action or at least speak out publicly. So it's very likely that this individual was taking on that lone wolf sort of guys. And what you described, I mean, we've heard most often when you hear the term lone wolf, that description, it usually, you hear the word terrorist right afterwards. Uh, the man who uh, rammed uh, the crowd with his car, is he a terrorist? Well, I can't say that at this point. As mentioned earlier, this is an active investigation. Right, right, Law right. enforcement is still trying to get more in terms of motive. Uh, there's a lot of speculation. In fact, there's a lot of his family, friends, colleagues, school teachers that have made statements already. But as mentioned, that's all circumstantial. And hearsay, we have to make sure that we know what's going on. Mm -hmm. And as it currently stands, it would be inappropriate for me to call him a terrorist. I can honestly say if he willfully took this action, 
um, this is something that I would put into the category of a terrorist action. But we have to be careful. Once again, it's law enforcement has to make that decision. Joanne Edwards, I, you know, initially uh, there were a number of arrests, and in, I in, uh, heard that uh, one of those arrested was from here in central Pennsylvania. Now, I haven't heard anything about those charges this morning. In fact, I only heard that there were like uh, three people uh, who were arrested. But how much of a concern is it uh, that we do know there were Pennsylvanians who attended the rally? that those Pennsylvanians attended this rally, you know, felt strongly enough about this that they traveled over state lines to do it, and that they could bring that hate here into Pennsylvania. Well, that's very true. Uh, you know, hate it can be anywhere. And again, it's just trying to be as prepared as you can. Uh, you're not going to know everything that's going to happen, but just the, the partnering that we do here in Pennsylvania with the other civil rights agencies, with the local human relations commissions, and with our, our police officers, the mayors, you know, all that is so important as we develop a united front. And I think, you know, when the community knows that you have folks working together, if we have this kind of incident occur in Pennsylvania, uh, you know, at least they know there's a united front and we stand ready to take action. All right, let's take a phone call from Reuben in Harrisburg. Reuben, you're on the air. You know, it's a shame that the president hates to denounce the KKK, uh, the Aryan Nation, uh, skinheads, neo-Nazis. And in fact, the president signed an executive order back on February the 2nd, removing from the United States domestic terror watch list the KKK, his base, and the neo-Nazis. But how can we talk about Boko Haram, ISIS, ISIL, when we have these terroristic groups in our country. We're being hypocrites. Mm. We're being total hypocrites. We had the KKK, the neo-Nazis, the Aryan Brotherhood, skinheads, and he just removed, because he donated to his campaign, the KKK, Ku Klux Klan, and neo-Nazis from the domestic terror watch list. Wait a minute. Are you trying to give him a free pass? Hey, Ruben, thank you very much for your call. Now, I know the two of you probably can't uh, comment uh, very much on politics. Uh, but, I mean, first of all, is that accurate that uh, the Klan was removed from domestic terrorist list? Uh, I'm going to take this, if you don't mind, Joanne. Um, as far as we're aware, I, I haven't gotten any information to that effect. Um, if that did occur, that's something to be new. Uh, to me, at the, this point, that information hasn't been shared with the Human Relations Commission. Are you aware of anything like that, Joanne? No, I am not. Okay. Well, you know, again, I, I, I doubt you'd want to comment on the politics of this, uh, but we will part in, uh, put into the conversation that the president was criticized for his response, which was called tepid, uh, toward uh, his reaction to what happened in Charlottesville. But let me do, I want to ask this question, and that is that uh, politics has, the language of politics has become more coarse. Uh, and it's the, the kind of thing that we, we haven't seen here in, in the United States in the last few years. There are some that would attribute that divide, that coarse language, that uh, separating of, of separation of us against them as contributing to this resurgence of hate groups out there, at least of, of hate speech. Joanne Edwards, your thoughts on that? Well, I can tell you that we've had an uptick of uh, incidents not only in the communities, but also in our schools, uh, ever since the new administration came into office. Uh, we have what's called a SPIRIT program, where uh, we uh, work with the uh, U.S. Department of Justice uh, Community Relations Service, and uh, the SPIRIT program is uh, a program that stands for resolution of issues together. And, uh, you know, when you have these, these hate messages going on in schools, it's very concerning to us. And uh, we are here, and we've reached out to the schools across the state to put the SPIRIT program into action, and that's been very helpful in the climate in some of these schools. But uh, in terms of uh, my feeling, uh, all I can talk about is the fact that we have seen an increase in incidents both in the community and schools, and our community and outreach division has been very active uh, ever since last fall. Let's take a call from Jim and Enola. Jim, you're on the air. Hi, Scott. Hi, uh, the first thing I want to do is compliment you for uh, for having this show so quickly. Now, having done that, I'm going to I want to criticize the media and uh, and our president. 
it seems to me that since this president has come into office, there's been a dumbing down of, of standards. This president, uh, the, the only two organizations or people that he will not criticize is Vladimir Putin and white nationalists and Nazis, and I don't think there's been enough outrage by, uh, by the media over this. This is outrageous. This cannot stand, and, and the media just has to jump all over him for refusing to criticize white nationalists. What, we, what, what seems to be going on here is that uh, they're lumping white nationalists and Nazis on one side, and, and some of the media are, are saying that uh, folks like Black Lives Matter are on the other side. Well, Black Lives Matter is not engaged in violence. Black Lives Matter doesn't have a long storied history of violence and killing people. They're not the same. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Hey, Jim, thank you very much for your call. I will point out, I'm not disagreeing with uh, Jim, but there has been a lot of uh, condemnation of, of the president uh, over the weekend. In fact, uh, now you have uh, a lot of the president's supporters coming out publicly and saying that, uh, you know, why criticize the president? Why aren't you uh, criticizing the neo-Nazis, the, uh, the skinheads? Uh, Joanne Edwards and Josh Bartash of the Pennsylvania Human Relations Commission, I want to thank you very much for being with us this morning. Thank you, Scott. And thank you very much for your time, too. We'll talk about this more, I'm sure, in the future. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by the Pinnacle Health Cardiovascular Institute's team of cardiologists, surgeons, nurses, physicians assistants, and rehabilitation specialists, delivering a broad range of traditional and highly specialized procedures. One of our goals on Smart Talk is to provide context and insight into the news that impacts your life. In an effort to further that goal today, we're joined by two journalists for a roundtable discussion. Is a roundtable when you only have two journalists? Anyway, maybe it's a back-and-forth uh, <laughs> two-way table. We'll focus on some important issues and maybe a few stories you've missed. Joining us is WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer. Katie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And John Meisick, who is the opinion editor for Penn Live and the Patriot News. John, haven't seen you for a while. It's been a while. Well, good morning, Scott. We weren't keeping you off on purpose. <laughs> just I, don't know, I, f- I felt like I could take this personally after I've missed you. <laughs> if you have a question or a comment, like to add to the conversation, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. And on Twitter, we are at smarttalkwitf. Okay, I want to just kind of segue from our last conversation, John, as an opinion editor, I mean, this is a topic that I'm sure you're going to be dealing with, uh, Penn Live and the Patriots are going to be dealing with over the next few days. Uh, but, you know, Jim, very uh, thoughtful uh, comment about the media's role in, uh, you know, tr- hate speech and what we've heard. How do you respond to something like that? Well, I mean, there certainly has been no shortage of coverage of the events in Charlottesville over the weekend. It's been wall to wall on CNN, on MSNBC, on any of the major news networks. Um, you know, just this morning before I was getting ready to come on over here, I had Morning Joe on in my living room. And, you know, the kind of criticisms that uh, your caller Jim was talking about were in full force. Um, so it's not as if this um, incident is somehow being swept under the rug by the by the national press. And it's something I'm going to have to address when I get into the office a little bit later um, this morning. But, I mean, he goes to sort of, I guess, Scott, the... the the difficulty of addressing an issue of this of this magnitude. I mean, on the one hand, you have the president's supporters. You had Vice President Mike Pence just, for instance, saying that there's been more energy focused by the media on um, condemning President Trump's sort of equivocating remarks on Saturday mm-hmm. into Sunday about this incident than there has been in addressing sort of the underlying issue itself. I found that disingenuous because there was certainly plenty of coverage and certain, certainly plenty of analysis. Um, on the left, where it sounds like your caller is coming from, it feels like he feels as if there was not strong enough um, condemnation of of of, the, of this white nationalist, or let's just call them Nazis, because mm-hmm. if you're carrying tiki torches and chanting blood and soil, I'm sorry, you're a Nazi. Um, 
So I mean, did, it, did, it, they, it, did the original Nazis in Germany carry tiki torches? I guess they well, were invented. Yeah. That. That's like cultural fusion. That's yeah, really it, 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 yeah, it's kind of like going to a German Polynesian joint, and you do you do the best you do the best. No, you not can. to make light of it. But. No, 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 certainly not. No, but I mean, no. but if you are carrying torches and you're chanting Nazi slogans, you're a Nazi. Let's not let's right. do away with false equivalencies here. Um, and I mean, and just if I can just mouth off for a moment, the president. Has you have rare moments when you're president where you not only address the nation but you also address the world at large, and certainly in Bedminster on Saturday afternoon when President Trump stepped up to that podium um, to talk about what had happened in Charlottesville that day, he had not, he was not only addressing the, the nation but he was addressing the world at large, and it was an opportunity for him to stand up. And to say in no uncertain terms that the United States does not condone Nazism, the United States does not condone white nationalism, and that he condemns in the strongest possible terms what went on in Charlottesville. Um, and that didn't happen. You had that sort of like on many sides, on many sides, weird kind of equivocating language. And then that spineless, frankly, statement that went on sat on Sunday attributed to an unnamed White House official. Uh, so it was certainly a missed opportunity, I think, on the part of the White House. And as a consequence, he prolonged... Um, the story rather than sort of dealing with it and, immediately. And that seems to be something that happens over and over for this White House, that something that could be dealt with immediately, and it would go away for the most part from their eyes, it's, it's prolonged because the president doesn't address it in a way that we're used to. And this is certainly a president who's not shy teeing off on people who have annoyed him. No, um, he spent, no. you know, how many days battering Jeff Sessions, the attorney general? He spent how many days banging on Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, over, over health care or any number of enemies, the media included? So his silence on this is conspicuous. He's not taken to Twitter, his primary platform for denouncing things to offer a very strong condemnation. And he seemed on Saturday to kind of be uneasy and fumbling for a way to address this, which, I mean, that was a gimme. It doesn't seem like you should, it should be too high of an ask to ask for a president who condemns Nazis, but unless, you know, here we are. Yeah. And, you know, something else that uh, I've seen on social media over the weekend, too, uh, you know, there's been worldwide and, uh, you know, almost 100% uh, condemnation of this. Uh, but so several people said that, you know, my grandfather fought the uh, fought against this flag during World War Two and, you know, risked his life, maybe even even died. And here this flag is being displayed in the United States uh, 75 years later. And there are people who are standing behind it. Yeah, I mean, I saw a, a Twitter or Facebook meme about that at the weekend. You know, it, it's not possible to be a good, a good American and also right. condone Nazism because we fought a whole world war over it. I mean, right. you know, millions of people uh, were involved. Senator Orrin Hatch, the senior Republican from Utah, said his brother didn't fight. I think he said perish in World War II. Yeah, he died for yeah. this to, for this to be happening in our midst now. Um, you know, it's it's a no-brainer. It really, really is. Mm. Uh, we want to talk about some Pennsylvania issues uh, uh, for the next half hour or so. Uh, the state budget. And, you know, I talked to a few people <laughs> last week about uh, oh, one of the topics we're going to address today is the state budget. And the question I got is, well, there's nothing happening there. So what are you going to talk about? Well, so that's Katie the Meyer, real... <laughs> <laughs> Everything old is new again. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to talk about something that's not happening. But Katie, right. what is the latest? Well, you know, I think the fact that nothing's happening should be news because what you have here is just to recap the senate has passed a proposal um to fund the budget governor wolf has said he supports that proposal it includes among other things a severance tax on natural gas and a larger gross gross receipts tax on gas um that goes to people's homes gas electric phones yes gas electric phones so that's controversial that's more controversial than the severance tax but anyway now that ball's in the house's court and they have to figure out what to do with it and they have had it all month and have not said what they will do with it yet uh we got a minor update from um house majority leader dave reed the other day and he essentially said we're looking at it um we don't support the gross receipts tax which we expected um it looks like i mean they say they have issues with the severance tax but that has a much better chance of getting in there than the gross receipts tax does um but other than that, and I think like specifics aside, because we don't know, they're going to change the plan from what the Senate passed. So we can't really go off of that to figure out what this final agreement, if there is one, is going to look like. However, 
Um, it's really worth noting, and I think this gets lost in the discussion, that what the legislature has done at this point is taken off a lot of pressure from themselves. We saw this two years ago when there was no complete budget in 2015. Um, and there was, you know, John and I were just talking about this. I wasn't here yet at this point, but I know from what people have told me, and John knows, there was a lot of discussion and discord and unhappiness in the legislature all summer when the budget wasn't mm-hmm. passed in 2015. This year, there's silence instead. And what that tells us is that, well, A, they have passed a spending plan. So they are spending money. They're putting money towards whatever they think are their priorities. And they are still $2 billion short on that. But that fact is sort of being ignored in favor of, well, we're still com- money's still coming in. We can still function. They've taken out a line of credit to meet immediate expenses. And so, you know, they're not under a whole lot of pressure to do anything. And so then the question becomes, well, what does that mean? Like, obviously, we know there should be a state budget and there is not a state budget. But it becomes much more difficult to measure what the impact of not having a budget is going to be when, again, as I said, they've taken a lot of the pressure off themselves and continued. They've let themselves continue government operations in a sort of, you know, half-baked way. Well, you know, we've talked about that many times. Yeah. That, uh, uh, there used to be the pressure of state workers not getting paid. Exactly, and, and that's exactly. been gone for years right. now. And that would be very public, and there seemed to be some pressure there. But, you know, what you just d- described is so true. You know, two years ago, there was a lot of tension. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of bickering back and forth. And they forth. didn't have a spending plan two years ago, no. which is the big difference here. Exactly. But this year, there hasn't been a whole lot of talk. And it, from the outside, it kind of looked like... Uh, Oh, things are going well. In fact, uh, all parties seem to say, uh, and I don't mean political parties, everyone involved said, uh, "Oh, it seems to be there seems to be some cooperation this year." Yeah, there's a lot of kumbaya language. <laughs> yes, but here we are in the middle of August and starting to look a lot like an impasse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God forbid you say the word impasse. I know, but I know. Uh, yeah, no, and that's. I mean, it's true. I don't know what else to call it at this point. I mean, there's two billion dollars in this budget that is not filled, and they cannot agree on how to fill that $2 billion. So if anyone takes issue with the word impasse, um, let me know. But <laughs> that's th- that sure appears to be will. what this is. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay, so here's the big question. Yeah. I mean, this is, as you said, uh, House Republicans have to deal with it now. They're the majority party in the House. So any indication when they are coming back to deal with it? No. Okay. Um, I mean, they have session days scheduled sometime next month. We don't know if they're going to be coming back before that. Um, And we don't know. I mean, they could change those session days. So we really, there's no indication of what we're going to see from them. Uh, Initially, we did think they were going to come back this month, but it's up in the air. Now, you talk about pressure, though. Uh, We've heard from Joe Tercella, the state treasurer, that... Uh, you know that Pennsylvania may run out of money start uh, to start running out of money at the end of this month be able to pay its bills hmm. uh, if I was in my own household and we all do that and we all make this comparison with our own household budget when my budget is not 32 billion dollars <laughs> <laughs> but anyway uh, that that would seem to say there would be some pressure yeah um, there is some pressure. You said, I mean, you mentioned running out of money. It's happening already. They've already taken out a line of credit from the Treasury to cover immediate expenses. There's limits to how much they can take out from the Treasury. So we may see that becoming an issue in the next couple of weeks or months. Um, But we're expecting them to take out another line of credit to keep meeting expenses. This is a common thing the state does. That's why I sort of don't like comparisons with like personal finance and state finance yeah, because yeah. it's a bad comparison. Yeah, really. I don't. I don't have a treasury from which I can take out a line of credit necessarily. <laughs> but, uh, no, not I. No, not I. <laughs> no, no, none of us have treasuries, but the state does, and that's acceptable. And they do this many years. They did a very similar thing last year. It wasn't necessarily um, a fiscally healthy thing to be doing at any point, but taking out a line of credit is something that the state can do. And, and I think you know, yeah. Katie's right. I mean, they're they're no, what, what makes this particularly pernicious is that there's no pinch points yeah. at all, right? So two years ago, we saw, you know, there was, there was schools, there was talk of school mm-hmm. subsidies being delayed. And that, you don't see that until it hits you where you live. Ed Rendell closed state parks, I think, during mm-hmm. the 09 misery when it dragged on until October. October. That's yeah. not happening. You have the pressure, again, of the, of the 09 state court decision where state employees who show up for work have to be paid. So there's no pressure point there. There's money flowing to schools. Programs are continuing to be funded. So 
to the average taxpayer, this is kind of an abstraction. Not, there's no immediate pain. There's no immediate downward pressure. So as a consequence, you know, Harrisburg sort of gets this free pass and can just let this this Seinfeldian budget kind of just <laughs> linger on and on and on and on. Yeah, and I will note, though, there is one sort of pinch point that we do come to eventually, and that's credit downgrades. And yes, we've had our exactly. credit downgraded right. in recent history, and it's I mean, if we don't fill this $2 billion gap in our budget, it is likely to happen again. Some people in the legislature say kind of on the download, they think it's going to happen regardless. So why bother? Well, but, and it, it's one of those things that, yes, we hear a lot about uh, credit downgrades. Yeah, but what does it mean? Well, well, what it should mean, what people should think about it is that when we borrow, we pay higher interest rates and that kind of thing. But what I guess my point is that uh, many people talk about it, but it doesn't seem to matter. It doesn't seem to apply that pressure. John... You just got back from vacation, so I hope we had a good time. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's well, nice to be back. before you did uh, go away, I, I, I read a column that you, you had written uh, asking about the Governor Wolf's role in this. The governor has not, I mean, we, we had him on our program last week, and, you know, he has a lot to say about it. He said at that time he was confident that House Republicans would come back and pass this budget. But what was your point as of where the governor is? Well, this? I, this is based on reporting by my very good friend, Angela Columbus, at the Inquirer, so let me just throw that out there. Mm-hmm. Um, to begin with. But the, there's been a complaint of longstanding this budget season. I'm sure Katie has heard it as well, is that when it comes to budget negotiations, um, Tom Wolf has been the phantom, the ghost who walks. He hasn't been around. He hasn't been in these closed-door sessions that he's not been taking the kind of hands-on role that you would expect a governor to take when it, become, when it comes to budget negotiations, particularly as, as was the case in 2015, where he was doing a lot of shuttle diplomacy back and forth between the Senate and the House and was dispatching his deputies between the Senate and the House trying to get a deal. Um, he has seemed content this year because having been stung in 2015 to kind of hang back and let the legislature steer this process. Because I think what we have now is, I mean, think about this for a moment. We have, these, we have the governor, Senate Republicans... Senate Dems and House Dems all sort of more or less on side with this budget plan. You've kind of got House Republicans hanging out there by themselves. So this has turned into kind of like a Russian family dispute over between a Russian family novel dispute between (laughs) Senate Republicans and House Republicans over what they're going to do with this budget, because there's reluctance on the part of of House Republicans, pardon me, to embrace some parts of the revenue plan that the Senate GOP sent, sent over, notably the borrowing and the gross receipts mm-hmm. tax stuff. Um, the Senate R's don't want to do VGTs, the so-called video gaming, right. uh, video gambling terminals in taverns and, and places like that. And they don't want to do any further expansion of liquor privatization, which is being pushed pretty heavily by the House. So with that dynamic having been set up, it's Wolf gets, there's no percentage for Wolf to kind of step into the middle of that. He can just like kind of hang back and let them consume each other and then see what's left um, at the end of that for him to try to push or not push. Um, It's a different strategy um, to the one that he embraced in 2015, certainly going into an election year next year. Um, He's probably trying to minimize his exposure some as well. So that's an understandable sort of dynamic going on here, too. Well, when when you make comparisons to two years ago, maybe it's being smart because... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, when you go nine months with a budget impasse, and yeah. even then they didn't want to call it an impasse, right. but you didn't have a budget, um, that, you know, rather than, uh, you know, end up going nine months this year that, okay, I'll sit back and you know, it's the ball is in the court. I hate to use the cliche. And, and his approvals took a hit for that two years ago mm-hmm. as well. So there's mm-hmm. no reason to do that now. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Uh, we have a couple of journalists uh, joining us today, WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief Katie Meyer and John Meisick, who is the opinion editor for Penn Live in the Patriot News, discussing some of the issues in Pennsylvania around the country. If you'd like to weigh in, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. Daphne from Camp Hill is on the line. Daphne, you're on the air. Good morning. Uh, you know, for so many years now, we have the same problem, that they don't have enough money for the budget. My, my thinking is that we should pay less money to the federal government and more to the state and local because they have a lot of burden to carry. And, and uh, the, the, the federal government uses our money in ways that 
or not always beneficial to us here locally. All right. Daphne, thank you very much for your call. I think President Trump probably would agree with the part about paying <laughs> less to uh, to the federal government. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure that uh, there are those like uh, Tom Wolf and uh, uh, other politicians in Harrisburg. I'd like to hear the part about more. But, you know, the point she makes overall about how people's lives are impacted more by what's going on in state government and especially what's going on in the county level and locally, people don't think about that because it, we in the media, especially the national press, focuses on national issues. Yeah, exactly. And since President Trump took office in January, John, I don't know whether you've run into this or not, but uh, there's such a bomb. There's a bombshell every day out of the White House that keeps us moving even here on the local level and how we're going to deal with these issues locally. Oh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, it's 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 one sort of head scratcher and ten car pile up after another, and it's been that way for the last seven months. You know, Scott, you and I were chatting before we went on the air about sort of the big Trump initiatives that have the potential to impact the most locally. Um, there was the potential, obviously, with the reforms to the Affordable Care Act that the House and Senate tried to pursue that could have affected hundreds of thousands of Pennsylvanians with the changes they wanted, particularly in the area of Medicaid expansion, because um, that would have been ratcheted back and the burden on funding would have been put on the states, and that invariably would have meant people being dropped from the rolls as much as Senator Pat Toomey and some other Republicans didn't want to talk about that happening. That's precisely what would have happened. Um, you know, have you now, and you talk of your paralyzed legislative bodies, um, co- Republicans in Congress now trying to make this push on tax reform, as the caller uh, sort of s- sort of alluded to, and nothing happening there. Um, should the president ever get around to pursuing what he wants to pursue on infrastructure? Um, you know, large. Sh- sh- the one. This is the one thing we're not talking about, by the way. When we talk about the state budget, we're talking about a very specific chunk. We're talking about the general fund, which mm-hmm. is that is directly funded by Pennsylvania taxpayers to the tune of $32 billion. But on top of that, something like, I think Katie can back me up on this, something like two-thirds of the budget or something close to that comes from federal sources. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's a giant, I mean, you know, the caller says, well, we should spend less, less money to the federal government. What sort of gets glazed over the fact is that hundreds of millions of dollars come into Pennsylvania from federal sources for schools, for human services programs, for the highway repairs through matches and various sort of funding streams. Mm. Um, so it's kind of it's it's difficult, more difficult, I think, than ever to disentangle those two those two sources of income into the mm-hmm. state. Let's talk about uh, something you wrote about today uh, when you're talking about the tax reform. Uh, there's been Russia. There's been North Korea. Now we're dealing with Charlottesville, and. The Trump administration has really trying to, been trying to push tax reform. All right, Mitch McConnell, move on to tax reform. Let's go. Let's get something out of this. Uh, you know, Paul Ryan, tax reform. So you have a story today, John, about a, a super PAC that is pressuring two Pennsylvania congressmen into their full-fledged support for tax reform. Yeah, it's, it's Conservative uh, Super PAC Action America, uh, run by Norm Coleman, a former Republican senator out of Minnesota. Um, they've done it. They're doing a nationwide air campaign, uh, about two and a half million bucks. They're dropping six figures into two uh, sort of swingy districts outside of Philadelphia. That's the eighth district uh, represented by uh, Republican Brian Fitzpatrick and the sixth district represented by Republican Ryan. Which Costello, does reach into which, central Pennsylvania. Which, which, right. Yeah. In its own tortured arthritic right, way. Right. Thanks to gerrymandering. Um, and they're doing this air campaign now to get them to try to get them on board with tax reform. Uh, these two guys are on the bubble. They, you know, they don't want anything. They're, they're, they're trying to get them to cue to orthodoxy. Um, what's, I think what's interesting, though, is that, you know, with the president, with the president trying to push a domestic agenda as he rushes, as he lurches from crisis to crisis, stuff like tax reform kind of gets pushed into the shadows. And Mitch McConnell has made the point quite reasonably, I think, that, you know, this stuff takes time. I mean, if doing if tax reform ain't easy for a reason, if they could get it done, it would have been done by now. And it takes a long time for this stuff to get pushed. And the president trying to push on this, but really not, I, it doesn't seem like they're devoting the kind of intellectual and political capital to it. That's something that a serious policy push like this really warrants just because they're distracted by Russia, by North Korea, by Charlottesville, by whatever self-inflicted wound. And, and a lot of this stuff just sort of gets 
swept under the rug, and it's up sort of these conservative super PACs to kind of swoop in and try to push this domestic stuff back to the center of the agenda again. Well, what does get swept under the rug sometimes is, you know, or are the details. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, tax reform itself. You just said, uh, if you just ask uh, Americans, uh, you know, a thousand Americans, would you like to see tax reform? I'd say 999 of them. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But then there are the details. So what kind of tax reform is the Trump administration and pushing? And we're, talk- we're talking about real fine print stuff. And there's a comp- there are competing visions between the White House and House Republicans. I mean, the president, keep in mind, Scott, ran on sort of promises for gigantic tax breaks for the middle class and for working Americans. Um, that got over to Capitol Hill and to the Republican Conference in Congress and to Paul Ryan, and that's not what's happening at all. We're seeing sort of the traditional Republican tax breaks for more wealthy uh, wage earners. So that vision has conflicted. And you're right. I mean, tax reform is one sort of like political Rorschach test. Everyone says yes, but once you get down into the weeds and into the fine print of of, of exemptions and and who's going to benefit from what, that's when it all gets really, really messy. Mm-hmm. You know, infrastructure, and I've heard many people talk about their surprise that this was something that the president uh, talked about uh, in in the campaign that uh, you know we're going to invest billions of dollars into uh, infrastructure improvements there's no doubt this country needs infrastructure improvements but again it hasn't gotten any real attention hasn't really gotten support from uh, democrats for one but even members of uh, the president's party haven't really jumped on board even though they have the knowledge that it is a worthy cause but paying for it is the big question you're talking to a guy who spent 12 hours in interstate highways (laughs) between georgia and pennsylvania (laughs) yesterday Um, and you can see the actually you can see the variance between States. Oh yeah, you can. You cross one state line, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's like this like amazingly well paved stretch of highway. And then you cross into Maryland, and or then you cross into Pennsylvania, and again you're like leaving a kidney behind you in Shippensburg. <laughs> and um, you know, it, it again, it's, this is one of those things that everyone seems to like, that everyone seems to agree on. But getting to common ground is again another matter entirely because it requires money to pay for bridge and highway repairs. So how do you get there? Do you raise the nationwide gas tax at a time when fuel economy is improving and less and less of that revenue is coming in? Um, is there vehicle per miles traveled fees? Are there public private partnerships? How do you how do you get to how do you get to yes on something like that? And if you look at the just what they went through trying to get a highway bill extension approved mm-hmm. like last year and it took forever and a day. Um, it is, again, one of these things that sounds great, but getting to yes is a very difficult measure. You know, what we're talking about, and, and Daphne's call actually brought this up, when we're talking about state and uh, federal governments, uh, Katie, NPR, there's a collaborative uh, with local stations mm. uh, regarding coverage of state government because NPR sees that, you know, what's happening in the states is is very important and does have such an impact on yeah. people. Talk about that collaborative, if you would. Sure. Well, yeah, we do um, sort of weekly collaborative efforts and try to come up with ways in which there are parallels between the way different states are handling certain issues. And so, you know, budgets are a great example because, you know, Pennsylvania goes about its budget in a different way than many states do. Um, a unique way. And, uh, That's a good way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> unique. A unique strategy. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just it's nice to be able to look at the parallels between different states. You look for, you know, for instance, when you're talking about Pennsylvania's fiscal issues, you want to look at a state that's a little bit further down the road to financial unrest. So you look at something like Illinois, where they're having major problems and just passed their first budget in three years. Um, so, yeah, things like that. It's very it's edifying to be able to make those comparisons. Mm. I want to talk about uh, a story that uh, you covered here a week or so ago, and that was, and this is actually not new, Mm. but it's the first time we've heard about it in in some time now. Uh, There are a couple legislators, one in the Senate, one in the House, that uh, are talking about uh, forming a constitutional convention here in Pennsylvania, that this would be the only way to make major changes in how Pennsylvania does business. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it's an interesting concept. Since I've been here, this is the first time it's come up in any serious way, but as you said, it comes up a lot, and it came up specifically like 10 years ago when we had a pay raise scandal. 2005, yeah. Yeah, 2005, so I guess 12 years ago. Right. And um, so, and this is a way for, yeah, the state government to essentially um, 
to reinvigorate itself without having to come to a consensus itself about how to reinvigorate, if that makes sense. So like the way to change the Constitution is either to pass a constitutional amendment or to do a constitutional convention. Essentially, those are the options. Amendments have to go through the legislature to successive years, and that's very difficult for our legislature to do, or any legislature. Uh, the way a constitutional convention would work is it's sort of a multi-step process, and it does take at least two years as well. Um, the legislature has to agree on the terms of the convention, you know, how far they want to go. The last one was a limited convention that was in the 60s. Um, and so they decide what they want to focus on. Then they, um, you know, go bring it to a referendum. Voters vote on it. They elect, a, you know, a board of delegates, essentially. And those are the people who are going to figure out how to change the Constitution. They present those changes. It goes back to a referendum. Voters vote on it again. And then if it, it goes through, the Constitution gets changed in whatever way um, they saw fit to do so. So it's a fascinating process. And I would love to see it happen. We probably won't see it happen because it's it's difficult to get these things rolling. But, yeah, we have two lawmakers, one in the House, one in the Senate, who have suggested this. They're saying as a way to sort of reinvigorate government to kind of address these fundamental issues. Like we always talk about the size of the legislature and we talk about, you know, gift bans and, you know, what they can accept from donors, those kind of things. Um, Issues that the legislature, you know, brings up year after year, but doesn't have the will to change usually. So, I mean, it's an interesting concept. John, you've been around long enough. <laughs> yeah, that, thanks. I appreciate uh, that. No, I, <laughs> you have more institutional will, knowledge I will, I will, than I, will, I do. I will give you credit. To the last one in 1967, you probably were a small child. Uh, not born yet. Oh, Thank not you. not born. Okay, okay. <laughs> See, you're, you're younger than Scott, a Scott, do you remember the 67 convention? I do not. <laughs> I do not. Okay, Katie, I got to what you're, what you're doing there. I'm a little older than you guys. But anyway... Uh, but you have been around enough in, in the last uh, decade and a half yeah. when uh, right after the 2005 uh, pay raise, the outrage over that, you know, we on a weekly basis, we heard constitutional convention, constitutional convention, uh, reform, reform. Just really haven't seen it. I mean, it is one of these things that kind of ebbs and flows, you know, and you have to have that kind of seismic event to drive any mm. to drive any voter reaction in any measurable way. I mean, we did see in that 2006 election, the departure of something like 20 incumbent mm -hmm. lawmakers, the single biggest shift in the composition of the General Assembly in about a decade and a half. Um, there were more calls for, ch and there's always calls for change in the wake of any major corruption scandal. After the wake of, and bonus gate in 2008, you saw calls for change. Um, yeah, and then and then that kind of dies down. So there's these ebbs and flows. And if I think on it now, there's been at least three or four calls for a constitutional convention since I've been covering state government since 1999. God, let me just say that sort of vote there. <laughs> um, coming up on 19 years, good Lord. Um, but it's one of the things that never seems to come to pass. I remember Dwight Evans bringing this up, and I think 2009 during the budget impasse. Former then, Philadelphia former state, state legislator. Now, now, now a member of Congress, right, pardon yeah. me, exactly. And... Again, it was one of the things that kind of got brought up. Everyone sort of said, "Yeah, well, that would be a fantastic idea," and then just went, and that was the and that was the end of it, <laughs> and it disappeared in a puff of smoke. Because you get to this point where like people are like, "Okay, well, it's good, but if you crack the hood on the Constitution, then maybe that opens the door to mischief as much as there is for, you know, actual structural reforms taking place." So that kind of killed that push. But the, really the only way, and Katie is correct about this, the only way you get campaign finance reform, the only way you get to shrink the size of the ledge or gift bans or the or the real structural stuff that the Barry Kaufmans of Common Cause and Eric Epstein's of Brock the Capitol have been banging on about for years is through that process. Because otherwise these bills come and go with every legislative session and there's precisely zero incentive to change anything because it would mean impacting the way lawmakers do their jobs and the benefits and the perks that they enjoy. Um, so, hence, another disincentive to conduct a constitutional convention. Okay, just to be clear, as Katie mentioned, uh, there would be a referendum. Now, that referendum would just be, uh, the first referendum would just be on whether to have a constitutional convention. What about what is the reforms that would be decided or whatever came out of the convention? Because what, why I'm asking is, yeah. when you mention uh, the potential for mischief, don't voters have a say on that? Well, they, I, they you do. know, they they absolutely do. But then, I mean, if if you talk about mischief, just look at the Michigas we went through with the judge's retirement question last year. You know, people there there's a 
better than even chance that people went into the polls that day and didn't realize the judges had to retire at 65 65 already. So it creates some confusion. So you can cleverly phrase things, as well we know, Scott, to get through any number of things. I think that would be the concern there as well. Mm. We only have about two minutes left. I want to thank uh, both of you for being with us today. But, John, I'd be remiss if I didn't (laughs) bring up uh, a conversation that you had online with... Donald Trump, when he ran for president, didn't have a whole lot of uh, Hollywood backing. Uh, probably the the, the, the celebrity that uh, <laughs> that let we us heard use, about, let us use that word in air quotes <laughs> that uh, supported him the the most vocally was Scott Baio, formerly star of uh, Happy Days, Charles in Charge, Joni Loves Chachi, and uh, Arrested Development. I found out as well. Oh, really? Yeah, he's that's right. Good that's for him. right. Yes. That's right. So you know, don't don't make fun of Scott Baio. But anyway, you had an online conversation with Scott Baio. Reason I bring this up, I want to talk oh about the, eventually the about the president so about the president's support. How did this happen, and how did the conversation go? It was bizarre. Um, he had popped off on the judiciary on on Twitter one afternoon, like a week or so back, um, saying, why do we even bother having a president if he can get rolled over by the judiciary? And I jumped on and reminded him that we have this thing called the separation of powers, and that's what they're supposed to do. And I never thought the guy would answer in a million years, because, you know, he's Mr. Big Shot Hollywood guy, and I'm He's chachi. He's chachi, for God's sake. <laughs> and I'm some, you know, I'm some dude in Pennsylvania, and oh my God, he answered. And then for two hours, we're going back and forth on... And I, I'm like, I'm out at my grill at home, like, flipping steaks and answering <laughs> Twitter. And, fighting with chachi. And fighting with, and arguing with chachi. And and you know, turned it into a column because it's just one of it was just one of these bizarro things that only the internet can produce. It was highly entertaining, and, and it's actually kind of it was mostly civil until he just like lost it and told me to move to Venezuela. I, that's what I that's wanted really to get funny. to. Was yeah. he, told to, that. he told me, and I was like, "What, dude? We're having a perfectly high conversation." And then he just like he wigged for like no reason at all. It was bizarre. <laughs> you not plan to move to Venezuela? Uh, no, 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 my Spanish is not good enough. <laughs> John Mysick, uh, opinion editor for Penn Live, Patriot News, John. Thank you very much for being with us today. My pleasure. Katie Meyer, who is uh, WITF's Capitol Bureau Chief. Katie, as always, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Coming up tomorrow, we have a Smart Talk road trip, and I'm really looking forward to this one. I mean, I look forward to the mall, but uh, the Jigger Shop in Mount Gretna. If you've ever been to Mount Gretna, I know many of you have. It's a quaint little village in uh, Lebanon County, and we're going to talk a lot about arts, theater, uh, the art show coming up in Mount Gretna, coming up in uh, oh, just a week or so. So we'll be talking about that and some other topics as well. So be sure to tune in, and that's at the Jigger Shop in Mount Joy. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support for this program comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a valuable and trusted resource for the communities we serve. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health, committed to research that improves health, reduces recovery times, and brings new treatments and therapies to our area before they are available elsewhere. More information is at pinnaclehealth.org.